Hello and welcome to Myelopathy Matters, the official podcast of the charity myelopathy.org, where we talk all things degenerative cervical myelopathy from the perspective of the professionals, the researchers, and the people living with myelopathy. I'm Yuvan Sadler, a person with DCM and founder of Myelopathy.org. And I'm Ben Davies, neurosurgeon scientist and also founder of Myelopathy.org. This is Myelopathy Matters by Myelopathy.org. So welcome. Today we are talking to spine surgeon Dr. Arya Nuri and clinical research student Celine Parthasarathy about the significance of nutrition in degenerative cervical myelopathy. So Ewan, I remember this is a question you once asked me. Could nutrition help myelopathy? Why did you ask that question? I think it's one of the many questions that I've asked you in the past. Prior to surgery and post-surgery, my weight increased, not just because of the lack of exercise. I had developed a sweet tooth for Nutella, so much so people were bringing me jars of the stuff. My diet was atrocious, to be honest, and looking back, carrying that extra weight around was adding to my pain issues because I was adding more weight for my spine to deal with. And I'm not alone. We have this conversation within the support group very often from new members. My diet now is based around an anti-inflammatory diet. I would certainly recommend people to look into this. So before your myelopathy, uh, Ewan, I know that you did a lot of Japanese jiu-jitsu. Yeah, um, I've been pretty active from windsurfing to the gym to my jiu-jitsu. So I think that was the hardest thing to sort of get my head around is losing my activities and not being able to do them. So people who are very active and pursue lots of sports can often, I guess, accommodate quite a high, you know, what we say maybe unhealthy diet. Do you think your diet was healthy during all of that exercise and activity? It was sort of healthy, yeah, but, you know, you could probably increase the calories because you were burning them away by doing my activities so i was training in the gym and then i was doing my jiu-jitsu so say five days out of seven i was keeping myself pretty active mm-hmm. and so you mentioned that you then transitioned you know with the the workup and treatment for myelopathy to quite a different sort of physical shape how did you find that it was hard it was really hard and i think i i was sort of comfort eating i really developed a sweet tooth but the problem is Without any exercise, it's really, really hard to sort of shift that weight. It's easy to put on, but shifting that weight without any exercise, you know, you've got to really look at your diet then. And was that the trigger then to start to look at your diet? Yeah, I was I was there developing stomach issues and everything, which I had not had in the past. I was sort of increasing my processed food because it was easy. It was just popping in the microwave and it's done. And, you know... I wasn't looking at the health impacts of putting on weight as well. And so when you started to make changes to your diet, what were you trying to achieve at that point? Just basically lose weight, first of all. But when I looked into it in more detail, it showed you that by not eating the right nutrients and all this, that your diet can be quite inflammatory and it could make my symptoms a lot worse. And when I looked into inflammatory diets and put in the foods that I needed to add to my diet, I found that with the weight loss and with my diet, it really helped with my pain levels as well. 
So in, in turn, it's also helped your your general well being, I suppose, beyond just the weight loss. Yes, yes, certainly, certainly, because when you put on weight, you start getting depressed, and it's a vicious circle, really, because. Everything in social media at the moment is get fit, have the perfect body. So when you can actually do that, you've got to put things in place so that, that you do not get obese and make your pain and everything so much more. And is this a topic that comes up often in the support group in the myelopathy.org community? Yeah, yeah, certainly. It's something that, you know, your body gets used to being active and when you're go from being active all your life to inactive, it's a bit of a shock to the system where you could have burned them calories by exercising in the past and all of a sudden, you know, you haven't got the ability to exercise anymore. It's certainly a question that was submitted to our AO Spine Recode DCM research prioritization process. So this is where we gather lots of different research questions that, that, that might be worth looking into and we then had them prioritized around the world by people living with the condition as well as professionals and so whilst it didn't enter the top 10 it was a, a popular question and, and and certainly as part of the process we check that those questions haven't been answered and, and certainly it was felt that question had not uh, been answered and I guess that turns our attention to our first guest today who's really made the first step towards looking at this question in in, in more detail her name is Celine Parthasarathy she's a medical student but also clinical researcher at the University of Cambridge and she's been conducted something called a systematic review. But I started by asking her why this particular question interested her. Nutrition is something that I've always been interested in. We know that an adequate nutritional status is necessary to prevent degeneration and to support regenerative processes. For example, vitamin B12 deficiencies can cause spinal degeneration. That's a known fact. And that's probably one end of the spectrum. Nutritional status is also linked to surgical recovery because surgery poses significant inflammatory stress and an appropriate nutritional status is quite important to allow patients to recover efficiently. Importantly, nutrition as a topic is frequently raised by people with DCM in the myelopathy.org community. So this is a systematic review that looked at the effect of nutrition on the onset and severity of DCM and its effect on surgical outcome in surgical patients. And what do you mean by a systematic review? So a systematic review collates all the literature and the results out there and tries to come up with a reasonable conclusion for a particular topic. So following our comprehensive search, we found 44 papers. We decided to split them into two main groups, those looking at the effect of nutrition on adverse events after surgery, and papers looking at the effect of nutrition on the spinal cord on, and the recovery processes. What was your reasoning for separating those two pieces out? The main reason for that was because nutrition has many dimensions and can affect several different processes. The second aspect to it is that not all DCM patients actually undergo surgery. So it's important to distinguish whether nutrition can benefit both groups, both non-surgical groups, and affect the onset, the severity of DCM. But also, perhaps it may have a post-operative role or an operative role as well. So essentially, you're trying to tease out an effect on the spinal cord itself, as well as the more whole wide body, perhaps, effect or need in terms of recovering from an operation. And what were your principal findings? 
most papers try to identify some sort of link between adverse events after surgery and nutrition, as opposed to just looking at the spinal cord itself. For example, DCM patients with pathological weight before surgery, specifically being underweight or obese, so more likely to suffer from infections, DVT, more likely to have hospital readmissions. But those papers that are looking at the effect of nutrition on recovery and spinal cord biology mostly had um, poorer quality. However, there was one higher quality study, which is quite important to mention here. One randomized controlled trial suggested benefits of supplementing cerebrolysin, which is a mixture of amino acids and peptides. And when given to non-surgical DCM patients as an intramuscular injection, it produced significant improvement in the treatment arm, specifically in the JOA score. So coming to the end of that process, how how confident do you feel in the, in the two sort of associations that you observed there, the one related to adverse events and the one then perhaps more targeted on the, the spinal cord itself? I'm quite confident that nutrition definitely has a role in adverse events. And that's something that's a well-known fact. And so with the exception then of that one higher quality study, the exploration of the effect of nutrition specifically on the spinal cord function, if you like, then was a little bit more tentative. It may have a role. For example, you know, uh, vitamins such as B12 and D may be important for critical subunits for neural repair over time. But that's a lower strength recommendation. And um, most of the work done in that is quite preliminary and more work needs to be done in that area. Really then perhaps what we've identified here is an opportunity really, a knowledge gap that, that may well yield some, some dividends uh, and needs to be explored further. Absolutely. I think it begs the question as to if we can optimise patients, specifically surgical patients, before surgery, why wouldn't we? One of the things that comes across from reading your report is it's, it's clearly quite difficult to measure nutrition and that's obviously going to affect how we can interpret this data you know for example looking at that metric of of weight which is not necessarily the perfect marker of someone's nutritional status do you think that's a problem here and perhaps how can we address that going forward it is a problem the use of surrogates like um high weight obesity and um uh, anorexia they definitely have inaccuracies and because of that the clinical measurement of nutritional status and the effect of nutritional interventions it's quite challenging so i think Future work should focus on how nutrition is defined and measured. That's something that needs to be done on the side. And I definitely agree with that. So I think the take-home message from Celine's review is that there isn't an awful lot of research so far in this area. Most of what has been done is focused on what might be considered disorders in nutrition, e.g. obesity and its impact on undergoing the operation for DCM itself. And as experienced in surgery, much more wider for almost any condition, problems of nutrition in people undergoing surgery appears to increase the risk of complications. However, in terms of whether nutrition can influence spinal cord health itself, I think the evidence for that at this stage is far less certain. I don't think I've ever had a discussion with a doctor about nutrition, but I suppose these sort of conversations won't normally arise unless there is some evidence guide it. So I was interested to hear of that randomized controlled trial. Yes, and that randomization, that increases the confidence that scientists can have that the findings are not simply the result of chance. And so we typically think of 
randomized controlled trials as quite high quality studies. So from your perspective, do you think there's something in this? Well, I certainly do, but I'm not the only one. This is also a question that's caught the attention of our next guest, Dr. Arya Nuri, surgeon scientist at the Geneva University Hospital. And I started again by asking him why this question of nutrition and myelopathy interests him. How I got interested in this topic was basically having reviewed literature when writing manuscripts on you know, other topics in DCM, I stumbled upon some papers that discussed B12 deficiency uh, that can cause what we call subacute combined deficiency of the spinal cord, which is one of the more rare presentations of B12 deficiency that can result also in myelopathy. And some papers evoked that this can be a differential diagnosis, while others have said, you know, both can be present. And at the same time, there's some interesting papers also that talk about anemia and outcomes in, in not just in myelopathy, but in patients that have spine surgery in general. And having the fact that, that lab work is done for all patients that we operate and even not operate, there's an easy way to just look at whether or not patients have anemia without doing additional testing. And just to be clear then, what, what is the relationship between B12 deficiency and, and anemia? B12 deficiency can cause a number of things. It can cause peripheral neuropathy, but it can also lead to uh, what's called macrocytic anemia. And that's basically saying that uh, the red blood cells are a little bit larger than they are normally. And the reason why this occurs is that because B12 is one of the vitamins necessary for DNA replication, and a lack of it can result in slower red blood cell production, if you will. And one of the things that we find uh, in lab work is that the blood cells will, might be bigger than they are normally. The reason why that's important is because it's been shown by a number of papers that looking at B12 levels themselves is not really that good. It's not really that useful. It's not always accurate. So um, other ways to look at if someone is actually B12 deficient is to see if they have clinical symptoms of what would be present in someone that has B12 deficiency. So what you were starting to do there is, is join the dots that, you know, measuring B12 itself isn't a perfect marker of how much B12 somebody has. But if you look for the signs that perhaps they're starting to become deficient in B12, such as anemia, that may give you a, a window into their nutritional status, perhaps their B12, which we know can potentially have ramifications for the spinal cord from, from related diseases. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, folate is also required. A deficiency of folate can also result in a macrocytic anemia. And uh, it's important to distinguish which cause. So when we see macrocytic anemia, we, we can't definitively say it's B12, but uh, it could be also folic acid. So once we have a macrocytic anemia, it still requires that we look into whether or not they have a folic acid deficiency as well, or if it's B12 really. But equally important folate for neural function. So, so what, what was your approach then with, that, with those sort of raw ideas into sort of trying to work out whether that was significant or not? So in a perfect world, we would have a nice study where we look at everything. But because we do blood work on all these patients, what we did is for two-center study, we looked at patients that were operated at the cervical spine, and we looked at the lab work, and we looked at also a NURIC score, which is a score to assess neurological function. And we had patients that had 
what is called radiculopathy, which is not a compression of the spinal cord per se, but rather just the nerve that's coming out of the cervical spine in a region. And we, we looked at these patients and their blood work, and we saw that anemia was much more common in patients with degenerative cervical myelopathy versus uh, radiculopathy. And we also saw that patients that had anemia also had worse NERG scores than those that didn't have anemia. And we didn't have a lot of patients uh, that had macrocytic anemia, so they had macrocytosis and anemia because you don't necessarily have both at the same time. But when we did have this, we did see that these patients also were worse off. So they had much worse neurological scores than patients that didn't have macrocytic anemia. Unfortunately, we only had a handful of these patients in this court, even though we looked at 700 or so patients. But it was an indirect way to look to see if this could have an effect on the baseline scores of patients before they operated. I was really struck by the study because I think it's a really interesting idea for a number of reasons. I think, you know, first and foremost, we know that B12, folate, these are vitamins that come from the diet. They are crucial for nerve function. We know this because deficiencies on their own can cause other neurological diseases. And of course, you know, somebody going through through surgery, we think we're switching off the mechanism for, for, for myelopathy. We're hoping they're going to be recovering. These are the kind of nutritional elements they really need to give themselves the best chance of, of making a, a recovery. And potentially there could be, in terms of supplements, such a simple treatment uh, that could potentially have some benefit. Yeah, I agree. You know, the thing is with vitamin B12, I think what I find really interesting is that it's not just that it's a common deficiency in older people. I think it's estimated about 10 to 20% of people over 60 have this def- uh, some sort of deficiency. But it's also because it, we know that especially B12 is, a def- is something that people are deficient in because a, a lot of people have um, gastritis, they have a lot of gastrointestinal problems uh, that especially predispose to B12 deficiency. So B12 is a complex molecule and it requires what we call intrinsic factor for absorption. As you know, uh, when we have these gastritis, when we have these problems um, with, this, uh, with the stomach, what happens is that we have a problem with intrinsic factor and, and we have problems absorbing B12. And we don't produce it ourselves, so it's something that we need to consume. And it is also something that is mostly available uh, due, uh, in meats. And we know that vegetarians, for instance, are also predisposed to having this B12 deficiency because of this. That's interesting because it picks up on another area that you took this line of investigation with because you, you lose the AO data sets, the CSM uh, North America and, uh, and international data sets to look specifically at whether people who had gastrointestinal comorbidities had a different profile of myelopathy. And perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about that study. Sure. Uh, to be honest, the findings were not what I expected at all. And yes, you are correct. This is exactly why I wanted to look at this data. Unfortunately, it's not very granular. So, you know, people with a bunch of different gastrointestinal comorbidities, as you, as you know, there can be many, were bunched together. But it was an indirect way to look to see whether this cohort represents a different population group. And that is exactly what we found. We didn't really find that that they were worse off or surgery didn't help as much for them. But what we did find was that the, the, the MRI evidence of uh, severe myelopathy was less common. They had, however, more neck disability. They had a lower neurological deficits, however, 
And they had a lot of psychiatric comorbidities, almost one in three. And they were also more commonly women. It was, it seems like a very different population group. I can't really tell you yet uh, what that all means, but it does seem like that this population is not a typical population and there might be other factors related. Yeah, so I think it's it's really interesting. It seems to be indicating there's a potential subtype, and it's it's further indirect evidence, at least at this stage, and really early evidence, one must stress, that there is something in this relationship between gut, nutrition, and myelopathy. And I think the other reason it, it strikes me as such a fascinating area is because the potential disability that someone experiences with myelopathy is gastrointestinal. So there is that potential feedback loop that one could imagine that um, the changes in their gastrointestinal health because of their spinal cord damage could be affecting their spinal cord health. Yeah, absolutely. You know, to be honest, I, I, I try to I try to think of the effect of nutrition on DCM in really three categories. So I think that there's nutritional factors that can predispose patients to DCM development. And I can get into that there's also nutritional factors that have to be considered as differential diagnosis when, when considering someone to have DCM. And then there's nutritional factors that potentially affect the outcome of patients. So, for example, for risk factors for DCM development, if we are not eating well, we have potentially influences on bone health and that can result in changes that are not necessarily going to be reversed by better nutrition later on. There are some studies that talk about obesity and, and changes in progression of bone degeneration and, as we say, spondylosis or uh, generally degenerative bone changes. And then these kind of things can occur and can potentially accelerate degenerative changes that result in spinal cord compression or nerve impingements and so on. Then there's also a possibility that patients that have subtle spinal cord compression, you know, as you know, you've published this recently, is that a lot of people have spinal cord compression that are not necessarily myelopathic. But what if they have B12 deficiency and spinal cord compression? Is there a additive effect? I don't know, but it's possible. And then an example for differential diagnosis would be you have someone with this asymptomatic spinal cord compression and they have various nutritional deficiencies such as B12 and so on. Is the asymptomatic compression just a, a finding that we saw and rather is it the B12 deficiency? And then finally, with affecting outcome, you know, there's some studies that, that have shown that patients that have anemia, while this does not necessarily affect spinal cord health, but People that have anemia, they are more predisposed potentially to longer lengths of stay at the hospital that have higher infection rates, potentially patients that have been transfused, for instance, they, they also have to stay longer in the hospital, they need more observation, they cost more money, and these are factors that kind of affect outcomes, but it's unclear really how all these things affect patients specifically with DCM, but we do know that there's things around it that are important lots of potential ideas as you as you're alluding to and I mean, have you been able to go further forward with this any sort of any ideas or directions that your, your research is going in now to try and get to the bottom of some of this well there's other nutritional factors that haven't been really well studied that might be worthy of exploration i think it's worthy to look at whether or not b12 i wouldn't say supplementation 
to augment function, but to optimize B12 levels, perhaps, maybe that will have an impact on surgical outcomes. Maybe they don't improve as much as others, you know? And I think it's something worthy to check into because it doesn't really cost a lot of money. B12 is, you can drink a Red Bull and you get, I don't know, 2,000 times the necessary quantity (laughs) that you require. But there's a lot of fortified foods, uh, drinks that have B12 in it. And it's not necessarily difficult to optimize levels and see if that potentially results in better outcomes. So it's obviously a work in progress, but I think you're alluding to there one of the other great challenges because in general for research around nutritional interventions, it's been very difficult to detect whether or not the nutritional supplement or regimen has had that benefit because as you allude to, it's so difficult to measure what's changing on a sort of biological level. You know, you could do a B12 level, but what does that mean? And and perhaps that will be a challenge here because we already know that you know, detecting those additional benefits as, as, alongside surgery in, in, in myelopathy research is particularly challenging. One of the points I wanted to get across is that there is a difference between nutrition being an adjunct to treatment. It's not going to treat the degenerative cervical myelopathy itself. It's like taking care of yourself and going running and optimizing your health. Nutrition is part of that. And I don't think people should view it as a way to circumvent surgery, for instance, if needed. It's part of the treatment. There's one thing that it's not very well known, and it's not really well known because it's not done everywhere. But so nitrous oxide is, um, is a rising recreational drug And it is known to rapidly deplete B12 levels. And it is also used as an anesthetic in some parts of the world. And it's been shown, we've done a systematic review on this, and it's been shown that there's been reports where patients wake up after the surgery with myelopathy, after nitrous oxide anesthesia. And this is not necessarily compressive myelopathy, but what is interesting about what we saw was that Patients that had this myelopathy that were given B12 supplementation, a lot of them recuperated their myelopathy, which means that B12 deficiency can be effective in patients that have a nutrition-related myelopathy component. And uh, it should have a, a beneficial effect to these patients. And it's been shown to have it in an acute, relatively acute phase. So it'd be interesting to look at that a little bit further. Wow, very interesting. Staggering, there remains so little out there, but a golden opportunity to look into the benefits of nutrition. And I suppose it links to how society is changing more widely. Something my 10-year-old son Ashton noticed the other day is that eating healthy is so much more expensive to do, and he's right. Also, food prep is so much harder, which makes it sometimes impossible for a person with myelopathy to prepare. So we turn to processed instant meals, but by doing so, we are depriving ourselves of the correct nutrients that our body needs. I see the UK government are going to discuss a bill to subsidise fruit and vegetables for people on low income. This would be very welcome. That's a really interesting perspective because it's something we've highlighted previously. There are examples, quite clear examples, of how inequalities, health inequalities can impact care in myelopathy and I suppose potentially if there is a link with nutrition this is this is another area that very much could be impacting outcomes. Yes definitely and I think uh, 
you know, a balanced diet is really key. But of course, I think it's clear there are some some major challenges here. I think first and foremost, measuring nutrition is clearly difficult. I do think it's important to ensure that practice or changes in practice are really underpinned by evidence. It's very easy to jump on a good idea, but all ideas do need evaluation. How also exciting, I think, about nutrition is realistically, in the context of medical therapies, it would be considered relatively cheap, simple, safe. And if there is that theoretical basis and we can really demonstrate an effect clinically, then it's got to be something worth pursuing. So what's up next month? Next month, we're joined by Dr. Zohir Gogwala, Chief Investigator of the first randomised controlled trial of anterior versus posterior surgery for cervical myelopathy. And that means surgery from the front or the back of the neck. Thanks very much to Celine and Aria for joining us. This was Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV and supported by an award from the National Institute of Health Research, United Kingdom. Although the views expressed are not necessarily those of the NHS, the NIHR, or the Department of Health and Social Care. To keep up to date with the latest in the field of cervical myelopathy, why not subscribe on your favourite podcast app where you'll find all of our previous episodes. There's also lots more information on the website, myelopathy.org. If you've got a question about myelopathy or an experience to share, we'd love to hear it. Please do get in touch at ben at myelopathy.org. But until next time, goodbye.